Acts chapter 11 in your Bible. As soon as you find it, go to 26, Acts 11, Acts 26. As soon as you find that, go to Isaiah 51. As soon as you find that, go to Psalm 16. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Acts chapter 11, and when you find it, stand to your feet with me. These are brief verses that we're going to read several of here. Acts 11 and 26. I'm going to go to the end of the verse because that's the part of it that I really want you to see. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now go over to chapter 26. There's a king there, Agrippa is his name. He's a pagan king and an unbeliever in Christ. And Agrippa here in verse number 28 of chapter 26 said to the apostle Paul, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. By the time that we get to chapter 26, the whole population was beginning to think in terms of this group of Christians, this movement. And the king said to Paul, you've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. I'm going to go in my mind. I'm not asking you to turn there. If you go to First Peter, it says, if any man suffer as a Christian. So those are the three times in the New Testament the word Christian is used. The first were called Christians at Antioch. Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. If you suffer as a Christian, you do thus and so. Now, in chapter 28 of Acts, turn there with me too, and the word Christian is not used, but in Acts 28 and 22, we desire to hear of you what you think, for as concerning this sect referring to Christians, Christians were known as a sect, as a specific group, a particular religious group, if you will. As concerning this sect of Christians, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And you may be seated. So the followers of Jesus Christ were first called Christians. Christian means little Christ. They were called little Christs because they reflected the personality and the character of Jesus Christ so much. And King Agrippa must have been very, very impressed with this group of people, this new sect, as it says in chapter 28, because he said, you almost persuade me, Paul, to be one of that sect, a a Christian. Now, through the years, different groups have used different names to distinguish themselves in the total number of Christians in the world. We are Christians first. Secondly, we are Baptist. We call ourselves Baptist. We derived our name from a man who Jesus referred to as a man who there has never been a person born among women greater than he. Jesus gave him the absolute highest compliment that a person can be given. There's never been a man born among women greater 
than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was, he got his name from the fact that he immersed people. The word baptize or Baptist comes from a Greek term, baptizo, which was transliterated. It wasn't even translated. It just a different form came about in English. And the word baptizo meant always to immerse, to submerge under the water. And so John was John the immerser. He was John the submerger. And his converts came as he preached there across Judea. And as they would come, John would immerse them. He called them to repentance and pointed them to Jesus Christ. And then he submerged them under the water. We take our name from him. There's an old joke that Baptist people have told through the years. With some of you, you've heard it many times. Others may perhaps not. And the question is, what would you be if you weren't a Baptist? And the answer is, I'd be ashamed. That's a strong Baptist who can say that, isn't it? And uh, I'm proud, though, today to be a Baptist. I don't apologize. In fact, I'm honored. If you called me Bill the Baptist, I'd say amen. I'm proud of that name. I would not duck that one at all. Somebody said, I'm Baptist born and Baptist bred, and when I die, I'll be Baptist dead. Amen? That's a person who's committed to what they believe, and there's a reason why we believe it. So my message today is entitled, What's in a Name? What's in a Name? I mean by that, what's in the name of our particular religious belief? What's in the name of Baptist? There's a lot of Baptists in South Carolina. There are more Baptists in South Carolina, I believe, than there is population. And yet, all of them don't know what Baptist means. And that's why I recommended that you get that little book, The Trail of Blood, The History of the Baptist People. And I don't think people understand that name at all today. In fact, many run from it. To me, it's one of the saddest, saddest trends that churches across America, thinking that they're going to attract people because the word Baptist carries a lot of baggage with it. It does carry a lot of baggage. So does Catholic, and so does Presbyterian, and so does Pentecostal. Every one of us in our particular groups we have a bunch of scoundrels and bootleggers, and I don't know what else we have, horse thieves and former days, car thieves now, I guess. We have bad apples and hypocrites and scoundrels that call themselves Baptist and other names as well. All the denominations are well represented, unfortunately. And so South Carolina is full of Baptists, but do we know what that word represents? And it distresses me. I see churches that take the name Baptist off and they name it some generic name. By generic, I mean you wouldn't know what the church believed or what it stood for. I was thinking about all these names. The fellowship. What kind of fellowship is it? The well. The, uh, uh, I saw a church, it was named Alive. What's Alive? What do you mean by Alive? Does that mean everybody else is dead? 
You know, I think, where do they get these names? And why do we run from our name? Yeah, we got some scoundrels who call themselves Baptists. But all they're doing is reflecting the nature of man, that we're all sinners. And why would we run from the wonderful, wonderful heritage and name that is reflected in the word Baptist, a glorious heritage of Baptist. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter 51 and verse number 1, there's a wonderful, wonderful little phrase there. Look at it on your screen. Look to the rock from whence you are hewn. And the idea, the images of a great outcropping of rock, somebody takes a chisel and hits it and A piece of the rock comes off its hewn from the rock. And to the hole in the pit from which you were digged. And so, what was the pit from which we were digged? Early Christianity. And what is the rock from which we were hewn or chipped from? It was the rock of Jesus Christ Himself. What a wonderful, wonderful description of who we are and what we are. And so, I want you to think with me about the glorious heritage and history of Baptists. Christianity enjoyed its most rapid time of growth in the days of the apostles, in the days immediately after the Lord Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven. Christianity just exploded. And some of those churches in those days grew to tremendous size. The church, we believe, in Jerusalem according to very reliable tradition, grew to about 50,000 active people coming, uh, active membership, and that was out of a city of only about 200,000 people. In other words, 25% or more of the total population was coming there to that central church in the city of Jerusalem, the first church that was ever founded. But in time, the church in Rome became, became even larger. And it had many pastors, it had many bishops, it had a tremendous staff, as we would refer to it today. And in time, and we're talking over periods of 50s and hundreds of years, over time, that church began to be so dominant that it began to assume authority over the smaller churches. And it began to use its influence to, to control the other churches. And so, a, a denomination was formed. And their first great error, though, it doesn't, didn't take them long to drift away from the New Testament. The first error was the unscriptural practice of baptismal regeneration. Somebody was reading the Bible, and they got the idea, the Bible has a lot to say about baptism. There's a lot of references about baptism. So, Baptism, if it's that important to be mentioned over and over in the Bible, it must have something to do with salvation. And so they began to teach that baptism was essential to salvation. Now, let me say, we categorically deny that. We renounce that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace are you saved through faith, not through baptism. Your baptism has zero to do with your salvation. Amen? But people began to misinterpret the Scripture, and they began to to go the direction. You've got to be baptized to be saved. We call that doctrine baptismal regeneration. 
And then another era came because era begets era. Once you get one era, you're going to have more era coming probably. And the second era was, well, if baptism is essential to salvation, we better hurry up and do it as quickly as possible. What if one of those little babies were to die? And if we hadn't baptized them, they would perish. So we must hurry and baptize them as soon as possible. And the evolution of the idea then became that we've got to baptize infants. And then another era, and we're talking about over time, two or three hundred years before all of this was in place. Sprinkling the babies, hard to baptize a baby, to immerse a baby. You know, you put a baby under the water, you've got other problems then. So the pastor or priest or whomever, they just take the baby and sprinkle a little water on its head. And sprinkling replaced submersion, immersion, baptism. Baptizo. And now we just sprinkle a little water on the baby's head. And the error there is we no longer picture the gospel with our baptism. Now look up here. Let me tell you, if you don't know, don't miss this. You look up there behind me, the most dominant figure in this building is that big cross standing there. And right below it, there's a pool with 1,200 gallons of water in it. And when a new convert, a new Christian comes for baptism. I greet them in that pool. We're under the cross. That's very, very important. That's symbolic. It's meaningful because they're coming under the cross for their baptism. They're coming to the cross. We could put a pretty picture up there, a beautiful picture of the Jordan River or something, and that would be okay. But the point is, we wanted here to everybody, every time we baptize a person, we want them to see that they are coming to the cross. It's the cross before the creek. It is the Lord's cross before we, we it is the blood before the baptism, as somebody said. We always want that to ring out very, very prominently. And so this new Christian comes and stands under the cross. And the Bible says, Christ died for our sins, point one of the gospel. I then immerse that person down in that water. A water burial is what that represents because Christ died for our sins. He was buried, the Bible says. I bury that convert, that new Christian, in the water. And then as Christ was buried, so he was resurrected, I bring them back up out of the water, and that pictures the resurrection. And so when you're baptized correctly and scripturally, you picture the very gospel of Jesus Christ that you're counting on for your salvation. Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He was resurrected to live in, for us to live in newness of life. And so baptism is the gospel in picture form. And so this is a great era when you tell people, look, You've got to be baptized to be saved. It's a horrible, it's a heresy. And then to say to them, look, you've got to baptize a baby. The baby didn't know what I was doing here today. What a wonderful day to be able to preach this. The babies are, are not of the age of competency. They're not of the age of accountability. They're just here. They're just little fellas. And so that baby then hears me uh, or that, that parent, we dedicate that baby, but that baby doesn't yet know the gospel. And so 
the baby now, it grows older and comes to know Christ as their Savior and their Lord. And we baptize that child as soon as they're of the age to where they can understand what this is about. And the error is, why would we baptize people who haven't believed? Why would we baptize people who are basically unconscious to what we're trying to do? It, it can mean nothing to, it means nothing to the child. And so those errors crept into the churches. And there were various groups, though, who said, we're not going to accept that. We're not going to believe that. We're not going to follow that line of thinking. And they were unwilling to be a part of that Roman system. And these people went out and they founded churches, and the churches were modeled after the New Testament pattern, the way the churches started out in their most primitive times. And these congregants met on Sunday. They assembled together as we are doing here right now. They sang praises to the Lord Jesus Christ as the New Testament commands us to do. They prayed together and they opened the Word of God and studied it and somebody preached from the Scriptures. They discipled their members after their salvation. They baptized them after their salvation. Their mission as they saw it was to carry out the Great Commission why is the Great Commission such a big thing with us? Listen to me. It's the only thing that Jesus repeated five times. Five times Jesus said, we're to go into all the world, preach the gospel, and then do what? Baptize, submerge, immerse those converts, and then train and teach them everything that we could about the Christian faith and help them mature and live their lives out for Him. And through history, those groups became known by different names. And that's why you have different names for different groups today under the Christian umbrella. And they were called by names in those early days like Montanist, after a man named Montana, a leader. Novationist, Donatist. Albigensians represented a, a certain uh, place in Europe there. Waldensians from uh, Germany, I think it is, in Switzerland. Paulicans, after the Apostle Paul. Somebody took that name. They took the name of their founders, or they took the name of one of the uh, early church leaders, or they took the name of their locale, a regional name, a geographical name. The largest group who refused to allow their infants to be baptized were called 